I have a confession to make. I had the idea to write a book for years before I finally put pen to paper and published the book. So the big question is this, how do people like me who battle doubt and insecurity push past their fears and publish a book? Well, that is the question, and this podcast is going to give you the answers. So join me as I bring you behind-the-scenes interviews and insights so that you can move forward and publish your book with boldness and courage. My name is Coach Tam, and this is Publishing Secrets. They say that confession is good for the soul, and I must confess today that I'm a little bit of a control freak. Given the choice, I would absolutely positively like to know all the details before committing to something rather than faithing it, taking it one step at a time. But often, family, the journey that God calls us on requires that we trust him to reveal the steps as we go along. And that was the exact experience of my next guest, Reverend Dr. Zach Mills. Zach had an amazing opportunity. I think of it as an opportunity of a lifetime, but it almost didn't happen because he almost talked himself out of it. So if you're that person that wants to know all the details, Zach has an inspiring story and a word of wisdom for you. Enjoy. Zach, so thankful to have you here with us on Publishing Secrets. You know, the journey that you went through to get to where you are is pretty amazing. I want you to start off by telling us the name of your book and who you wrote it for. So my book is entitled The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans, Black Lives and the Faith That Woke the Nation. And this book, The Last Blues Preacher, is a biography on a very famous civil rights leader and Chicago pastor named Reverend Clay Evans. Reverend Evans grew up in Brownsville, Tennessee, just a stone's throw from Memphis, Tennessee, and moved to Chicago in the 1940s and became really involved in civil rights and became a very famous gospel singer and preacher. He pastored Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church for 50 years and did incredible things in Chicago in terms of civil rights and worked with Dr. King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. for a few years and um, during the Chicago Freedom Movement. So The Last Blues Preacher is a story about Reverend Evans' life from the time he grew up as a sharecropper on a you know southern farm in Brownsville, Tennessee, until um, you know he retired from Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church in 2000. So it, it details all the wonderful, exciting adventures he had, and the different people he met along the way, including Muhammad Ali, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Sam Cooke, Rita Franklin, and the list goes on. So it's a it's a story about the underdog beating the odds and fulfilling the purpose that God had for their lives. Wow, Zach, I can only imagine what it must have been like to, you know, sit shoulder to shoulder 
with Reverend Evans and meet all of those great personalities. So I definitely want to dig into that. But before we do, I've got to talk about something that's really important. You know, I think one of the hardest things um, about being an author is choosing a, a great title. And the title of your book is very intentional in nature. Reverend Clay Evans, Black Lives and the Faith That Woke the Nation. I want you to clue our audience in on how you arrived at this title and its significance. So you're right. Coming up with titles for books, I think, is one of the hardest things that those of us who are writers uh, experience. And so if, if, if you're watching and you're writing a book or have you, you've written a book and you've gone through that experience, you're not alone. It's, it's natural. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in, you know, sometimes titles just come to us and that's great. And sometimes they don't. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in waiting when they don't. There's, there's wisdom in immersing yourself in your story. Because if, you, if you're patient enough, when they don't come quickly, if you immerse yourself in your story and what you're writing and your message, over time, then you can you find better, richer titles that more accurately reflect what you're trying to convey. That was the case for me. I spent eight years writing The Last Blues Preacher, and I did not get the title until probably the last year. I had several different titles lined up. Um, they just they didn't speak to me. They didn't sing. And it didn't really reflect, whatever I came up with didn't reflect the heart of the message. And so the last blues preacher, I started thinking about Reverend Evans' life. He, he did so many things. And so that was one of the reasons why it was so hard to choose. He was a singer. He was a songwriter. He was a pastor, a civil rights leader, an activist. He was so many different things. And so I started thinking about the essence of, of Representatives. How would I sum up the essence of who he was as a person? So the blues preacher came to mind. Blues preacher is a a, a title, a term that uh, describes a group of uh, tradition of preachers in America. These preachers grew up in the South uh, during the mid 20th century, so 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, grew up in the South, and then they were steeped in this wonderful, rich complex musical tradition of blues and gospel and jazz and uh, secular kinds of music. So a lot of people like Reverend Evans would go to, you know, hang out at juke joints. You know, I'm not sure if Reverend Evans ever went out to a juke joint, but people in, in that era would, would go out on Saturday nights and they would party at clubs and they'd hear secular music. They'd listen to blues. Then on Sunday morning, they'd get up and they'd, they'd go hear gospel and spirituals. And in Reverend Evans' community, they were sharecroppers. So they were in the fields all day um, until the, the sun went down, singing spirituals, singing spiritual songs. And just the, the music of Brownsville, Tennessee, which was close to Memphis, about 45 minutes from Memphis, there, that area of the country produced some of the, the greatest jazz and blues musicians in the world. Um, Reverend Evans' good friend, C.L. Franklin, grew up in um, Mississippi, and he eventually became a, a very famous preacher in Detroit. So blues preachers, it, it's a term that really describes people like C.L. Franklin, people like Reverend Evans, who grew up in the South, were very much affected and shaped by blues and gospel to the extent that the blues, you could hear it in their singing voices. You could hear hear the blues in their preaching voices. It's fascinating to, to, uh, to play blues music 
alongside of uh, like a blues blues musician, hear them play, and then play Reverend, one of Reverend Evans' songs or sermons right next to it, and they sound identical. They sound very similar. So that's when I started thinking about who Reverend Evans is. That's one way I came up with the last blues preacher because that that really was a, a fundamental part of what made his voice so unique. If, if anybody who knows Reverend Evans or has heard him sing or preach, he's got this very unique, gravelly, bluesy gospel voice, and it comes from his upbringing, coming from Tennessee during the Great Migration in the 1940s to Chicago, and 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 just finding ways to express um, himself musically, um, and you know, and then people hearing the ways that the blues and gospel has has you know, just permanently shaped his voice. So that's one way. The other way that I started thinking about the essence of Reverend Evans was I started thinking about what he did with that bluesy, gravelly gospel voice for 50 years while he was a pastor. And what he did with that voice is that he ministered to people in the pews who were experiencing their own blues, especially in the 1950s and 60s when segregation was alive and well and Chicago was, as Dr. King said, more racist and more vicious than any city he'd ever been to in the South. So there were a lot of blues that people in Chicago pews were experiencing every week. And they would come to church, they would come to Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, and Reverend Evans would minister them. So he would speak the life-giving good news of the gospel in a bluesy way, in a way that resonated with people because there was so much there, there was so much love and passion for blues and jazz and gospel because so many people in in the south came to chicago during the great migration and then they were finding comfort in hearing in church familiar sounds like blues but it was the gospel so it was just a brilliant mixture and he used that mixture of blues and gospel of of the the sacred and the secular to minister to people who were experiencing incredible blues so that's when that came to me i was like ah that sums up the essence of his life, the essence of what the message of this book is. It is a book designed to help people find the light and move from their blues to the good news of the gospel. Instead of stressing about the title, your advice is to immerse yourself in the story, to really get connected with what you have been called to write and trust that the title will come as you continue to immerse yourself. I love that. And that's going to help so many people, so many people. Thank you for sharing that. So let's talk a little more about your journey as an author, Zach. Um, as I've shared with you, I just can't imagine you know, being in your shoes and being exposed to the people that you were exposed to. This is a once in a lifetime type of experience. So I'd love for you to share with our listeners, how did you realize that you were called to write this biography? Yes, so this is what I like to call, it was, it was a, God, a God moment. It was, it was divine intervention. There was, I still am in disbelief that I was, am the writer of this book. It just, I don't know how it happened other than it was divine intervention, God, willingness, and, and willingness to be. So, when I was a poor graduate student um, at Vanderbilt, I was finishing my second master's degree in, in preaching at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and I didn't have enough money to finish my degree. And so Vanderbilt said, okay, we're gonna send you 
um, out as, as a, a one-member part of our team, research team, you're going to go to rural Tennessee, a country city in Tennessee. You're going to do research there for six weeks on the intersection of religion and um, politics, and then you're going to come back and we'll give you this amount of money. And so that was great. They sent me to Brownsville, Tennessee, uh, where Reverend Evans was born and raised. So that, that was maybe 2009. So two years before I even met Reverend Evans. I was doing research there in, in the town he grew up in. Fast forward two years, I was in Chicago. I had been working at a church as an associate minister at Hyde Park Union Church in Hyde Park in Chicago. And two white ladies had been worshiping at this church. It was a, it's a very diverse congregation. It was a, a, a fantastic congregation. And these two white ladies had been worshiping there for a couple of weeks. And they stopped me after service one Sunday and they said, Reverend Mills, um, have you, we see that you have a background in journalism. So my undergrad degree was print journalism, and I worked as a journalist for a few years. And I said, yeah, that's right. And then they said, would, have you ever, would you like to write Reverend Evans' biography, Reverend Clay Evans' biography? Do you know who he is? I said, well, I know who he is. I've heard of him, but I've never met him. And so we decided to meet. And one, it was August 25th, 2011. We're meeting. It was the first time I ever met him. And I basically told him no at first. Once he said what he wanted me to be the writer of his biography, I originally said no, because I was very busy. I was, you know, associate minister of this church. Uh, so I had a lot of responsibility. I was writing a master's thesis. I was really busy. So I, I didn't know if I could handle the workload of writing a biography. I had no idea how to write a biography. I no clue what I was doing. But, I, and I say this in the, the preface to the book, the real reason I told him no initially is because I was scared. I was intimidated because this was, I had never thought about writing a biography in my life. And all of a sudden, the, the most famous living black preacher in Chicago is asking me to write his biography. And I have no clue how to do that. I've never, you know, had no sense of how to write a biography. So I was scared. I had no experience doing it. I was inexperienced. I was insecure. And so those of you watching, I would say to you, if you're feeling those times when you feel insecure or inexperienced, you're never going to know unless you try. And so, so Reverend Evans said to me, I want you to be concerned, but not worried. When you're concerned, it shows me that you're going to take this project seriously. But don't be worried because whatever you do it is, is going to be fine with me. You can't disappoint me full speed ahead. And that was his mantra that day, full speed ahead. And so we, we all, we went full speed ahead. And, but another thing I want to say about the doubt, the self-doubt, the insecurity, that's natural, okay? And especially for writers, you're going, especially if you're writing about something or a genre or a project that you've never done before, it's natural to be insecure. If you're inexperienced like I was, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. it being insecure and being inexperienced doesn't mean you, should, you shouldn't write the book. A lot of times, in, the, in, in my case, it means I, I was the right one to write the book. In many ways, um, because I didn't have any experience doing this, and so there wasn't the same kind of ego that gets involved with someone who's really, that can happen when, when you're a really renowned journalist or an expert, sometimes you can, you can get overly confident in your skill and your craft, but when you're new at something, everything's pure you're learning and so for me the the 
the, the primary motivation was not, oh, to write a book about a, a really famous person. It was to tell a great story. And because I was insecure, because I was inexperienced, I, there was just a, it, an, a, a sincerity about everything that I was doing. And that was, it was just a, I had pure motives, you know. And so I think that that, that kind of, it kept me humble. And I think that's a really important thing when, when you, especially as a writer, you have to think about this book as something that's beyond just you, okay. And so, um, but that's how it happened. It happened that suddenly and that unexpectedly. It just literally, the universe dropped it in my lap. I talked to mentors about whether or not I should do this. And here's the other thing that's important an important lesson that I learned, had mentors, my most respected mentor, even today, advised me not to write the book. He said, he said, Reverend, you, you're writing a master's thesis and you're, you're an, a minister, associate minister. You've got a lot on your plate. I, you know, it's, I don't think it's wise for you to do that. And, you know, I'm so glad I didn't listen to him. And so, and that was everything that he was saying was right. I was very busy. It would have been very easy to let those things, to let one, if, to let something fall, one of those falls drop, and um, but this is this is the hard part about life and and ministry and hearing God's call is that sometimes there are people that you love and respect who are telling you something that is logically right, something that, that disagrees with the, the 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 other answer you have in your heart and your spirit. And you have to be courageous enough to listen to that, that inner voice, to listen to the voice of God. That's a very difficult thing because when you love someone, a mentor, a family member, you know, they have such an authority in your life because you trust them. You trust them. You, you see them as wise people. That was very difficult for me. But I, oh, my gosh, just to say, to hear what my mentor was saying and then do the opposite thing. That was very difficult. But, my goodness, I think every day when I think about this book, I think of, all that I would not have experienced. This book changed my life. It changed so much for me, for the better. I became stronger, wiser, um, more discerning, all those things, and so many more. I would have never experienced in that way had I listened to someone that was telling me something that was true. I was too busy. I didn't have too many things going on. But when, you, when, you are, when you're called to do something, um, that, that is the priority. And I, I wish I could tell you that when I made that decision, I had as much clarity as I do now. But even when I said no to my mentor, I'm sure it was because I did feel that, yes, I, in my heart and my spirit, that God was calling me. But it was, it was a lot of it also was, I, there was this great story that I wanted to tell. So looking back, I'm glad that I listened to that voice, even though I don't have as much, I didn't have as much clarity that, oh my gosh, yeah, this is, you know, it, you know, how many years later now? It's just like, I have all this clarity of, oh yeah, that's obviously what God was up to. But then it just, it was, yeah, this is God. But a lot of it was just this, this, this great story that I, wanted to tell and so it was a project that i wanted to do and um but it was a project that i was called to do sometimes in order to follow the call that god has for you 
you are going to have to go against the grain. Scripture tells us to seek wise counsel. And I have no doubt that this mentor was wise counsel for Zach. In many instances, he was able to speak a word of wisdom in his life that propelled his life forward. But then there are going to be times where there's a voice inside of you that is calling you to do something that is outside of the box. And there's going to be conflict. You're going to have to have the courage to stand up for your convictions, to stand up for the seed that God has planted within you and not be so married to people's approval, but be more concerned about following God's plan for you, for God's approval. Wow, so much, so much wisdom there. So Zach, I want to go deeper into this story. So you talked about how you know, you felt insecure about this project. Like you were in over your head. You weren't prepared to do it. You had a lot going on, but you eventually agreed. You said yes to the call. And so I'm curious what happened next. You know, once you said yes to the call, was it all smooth sailing from there or were there challenges along the way? After I said yes, it was smooth sailing for a long time. So I remember I was working full-time at, a, at the church. I left the church a couple months after I met Reverend Evans. So I, left the ch- I met Reverend Evans in August of 2011. I left the church in December 2011 to go work for a religious-based nonprofit. I was working there full-time, and then I remember sometimes I, would, yeah, I was interviewing Reverend Evans at least once a week sometimes twice a week for the next two years. And so I was working full time. Sometimes I'd take my lunch break. I'd take a longer lunch and I'd drive from Michigan Avenue to the South side of Chicago and I'd interview Reverend Evans. That went smooth sailing for about two years. And that was the kind of time frame I gave them for how long it would take me to, to at least come up with a, a first draft of the book. That was, uh, I, I really kind of, you know, it took me a lot longer to to write the book. Not so two years. I had almost a full draft. So there, you know, I still needed a lot more questions to answer, some holes to fill, some research to do. But those two years were pretty smooth. I was interviewing him once a week. We were going and meeting different kinds of people. Reverend Jesse Jackson, Minister Louis Farrakhan. I mean, that was such an amazing experience to see someone like you know the power that he had, not that he wielded it in any kind of, um, you know, showboating way. He was a very humble person, but the, the respect that people had for him because of the things that he did in his ministry, standing up for Dr. King, when, when a lot of black pastors and a lot of white political leaders did not want Dr. King coming into Chicago um, because some of the black pastors had made some backroom deals with politicians and and Dr. King's presence in Chicago threatened the status quo, threatened to disrupt all of that. And so lots of people didn't want him there. Reverend Clay Evans was warned. He was building a a church at the time, a sanctuary uh, onto their existing building. And he was warned by the city if he supported Dr. King, they were going to pull the building permits and funding and all kind of stuff. 
Uh, and that's what happened. And his church, the sanctuary part, the new sanctuary stood steel beams and concrete for seven years. Um, he would come out of his church and there'd be pastors there laughing at him. Look what you started, what you couldn't finish, Reverend Evans. He said that was the most difficult time in his life, a very humiliating time. But because of moments like that, because of other kinds of stances that he took, he gained so much respect in Chicago. And so we would go those two years that we started the, the, the writing process, those first two years. Man, we were going all over the city. Doors were being opened that never would have been open to me. Um, getting to see behind the scenes stuff. Um, I got to interview the, the former mayor of Chicago, um, Richard Daly. I got to interview um, Pat Quinn, the former governor of, of Illinois. So, you know, just Congressman Bobby Rush, just, it was an incredible experience those two years. Um, very, very, very smooth. Um, about the end of the two years, that's when things started to get a little rocky. And so what ended up happening and, you know, for all you writers out there, whenever you're going to do a project like this, I was so naive. I was so green. I had no clue what I was doing. If you're, if you're going to get into a partnership with somebody when you're writing a book or if you're writing a biography, if you're doing something with somebody as a partner to write a book, what you have to do at the beginning is get a formal contract. Have a contract. Have a lawyer. Have you know, have your lawyer look over everything and make sure you iron out every single thing that you want, every single thing, every expectation. What happened to me was we were working on this project about two years into it. I had a rough draft. I informed. Uh, so it was kind of a team of us working together. It was me and Reverend Evans and then the two white ladies who were introduced me to Reverend Evans. We'd all meet during these interviews, um, which was, uh, you know, I was uncomfortable with that at first, us all meeting together. I just wanted me and Reverend Evans to, because sometimes people open up and tell you things one-on-one -on -one that they wouldn't with a group. So I was like, okay, whatever, they have to be there. So we, inter you know, we would interview them together for two years. And then that, that sometimes worked out really good, too, because they had some insights, and that was great. At the end of the process, when I handed the uh, rough draft in and I told everyone. This is just a very rough draft. There's still work that needs to be done. What happened was one of the, one of the white ladies, it, I never had any issues with Reverend Evans or his family. They were fantastic the entire eight years. They were amazing. They're still amazing. I love them to this day. What happened when I turned it in is one of the white ladies was not happy with the, what she said, the quality of the work. And I explained that this was just a complete rough draft. There's still a lot more work to be done. And it's just my process to do things like this because they, they, they wanted to, to read the writing. And I was like, well, there's still more to be done. And eventually I said, okay, well, I'll show you what I have so far, but this is just a whole. One of them was not happy with it and basically said some very unkind things. It's unfortunate because we were friends before this whole thing happened. Um, and this is just the beginning of the drama. And what happened next time is next time we met, I was told that I needed to hand in all my notes, all my recordings, and that they were going to use someone else to write the book. And I, I said to them, look, that doesn't make any sense. That's stealing. That's not right. That's not just. The, and what made matters worse is that, good, bless Reverend Evans' soul, he was 80, mid, late 80s when we started the project. And so he was almost about 90 when the drama started happening. He was an old man. He was tired. He, he didn't need any of that drama. 
And so he's just kind of deferring to these two white ladies to, you know, to handle the business of the book. What his job is the, is the, to tell us the story. And so he wasn't, he was just kind of relying on these two people. And one of them was just kind of acting on behalf of Reverend Evans, sometimes without him knowing. Because I would talk to like family members and I'd say, I'd say, hey, you know, Reverend, Reverend Evans' daughter, one of his daughters, just very dear to me, um, is like my spiritual sister. And she, she, I would talk to her because I'm like, I, there are these things happening and I don't understand what, what this is. And, and she, a couple of times she's like, oh, yeah, dad never said that. Um, and so that told me that sometimes someone was just acting on behalf of Reverend Evans. That happened a lot. And so I had to get a lawyer. It took me months to find a lawyer. I couldn't afford a lawyer. I had no money. You know, I, I wasn't, you know, making enough to, well, I, I just, there was, there were so many things going on. It was just like, I don't have enough money to hire a lawyer for this long term. And I went through this agency and I found um, a, uh, through the church that I had worked at, one of the members there gave me a, um, a reference for a lawyer and the lawyer drafted some stuff for me um, for free. And then, he retired and pointed me to the direction of, of an organization that would give me a free um, lawyer. It's called Lawyers for the Creative Arts. So I had a lawyer working for me for free for like the ne next six years. And it was just, it was so much drama. There was this whole issue of copyright and um, who owned what. And I had to, I was telling, I would sit with Reverend Evans and these two ladies multiple times. It was so stressful. It was, is just ongoing, it would never end. And I explained that I was the one, as, since I've written this, the laws on my side in terms of the writing, the writing is all mine. And so we had to go through months and months um, of, of discussions about copyright and it just kept getting so ugly, not between me and Reverend Evans, but between me and these, these, these two ladies who were, what one again one in particular that I felt was trying to drive a wedge between me and Reverend Evans and sometimes there was tension between me and Reverend Evans but it wasn't because of anything that was really happening between us it was because of things that these other two were were doing insane so that was an incredibly lonely time because I would show up to Reverend Evans house and it was usually like me on one side and all of them on the other side and all I was trying to do was tell a good story. Um, but again, all this happened because we didn't have a contract at the beginning. People weren't clear about expectations. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing I'd say is have a contract. But um, I just felt so misrepresented. I felt like these two people were saying things about me to Reverend Evans that were not true. Um, the, the sense that I was like this young opportunistic person that was trying to profit from Reverend Evans and I would just all these kinds of things were just so untrue and so it was so frustrating so it was frustrating it was it was lonely um, I it was yeah it was just it was just a very unfortunate experience that really resulted because we didn't have a contract expectations weren't clear um, and the drama goes on beyond just the copyright so just um, that was kind of one bump I hit in the road. First two years was smooth sailing. We hit that copyright issue. And then the next year, third year was just, it was hell. Thank you so much for your uh, willingness to share such a painful experience. I can only imagine the feelings of being betrayed and 
misrepresented, you know, people that you had walked alongside of um, and spent a lot of time with really just kind of turning their backs on you. So I wonder if, if I were to put myself in your shoes, for me, there certainly would have been moments where I would have thought about walking away from it all. So I'm curious, was there a point, Zach, where you thought to yourself, this isn't worth it? Yes, many times, many times when that third year, that was just so much drama. It was exhausting. Um, It was depressing. I was angry. So, you know, I just, I'm 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 a kind of Zen person. I just love peace and living that way. And what was happening was so opposite of my whole vibe and the way that I move and live and be in the world. It was so foreign to me. I just, I'm not a person who lives in drama or deals with drama. Um, and so, yes, I, many times, I, I, I was like, God, like, why, this is not worth it. This is, um, I would, I just want peace. I don't want to fight. I don't want, I'm tired of saying the same thing. I'm tired of defending myself. I'm exhausted. I just, I just want this to be done. And so, yeah, there were many times I just wanted to stop, but then I, I invested so much into that book already. And so I was determined to not let that be a waste. And certainly if I had not written the book, I still would have learned lessons. I still would have learned things about like having a contract. I would have learned a lot of great things, but it would always have felt like unfinished business, something that I gave up on that was mine to do. And so, and then I also wasn't going to let other people determine my direction. And so this is what I felt called to do. And, you know, this is the, this is the tricky thing though, because when you're stressed, when you're depressed, they're tired about a project and things aren't going right. Things are rocky. People are hating on you for no reason. Um, telling lies, trying to create wedges when all that drama is going on can be very easy to say, you know what, screw this. I'm out. But that kind of thing for me, you know, and sometimes it's healthy to get out of situations. So that's, you have to be discerning about that. But for me, I, it was leaving that project would be me allowing people, toxic people to limit my blessings, to stop me from doing, from going in the direction that I knew I was supposed to go. So I was like, no, I, I became even more determined in the midst of my frustration to figure out a way to, to start this, to finish this thing that I started. And so, um, you know, I, I became very good. I, I learned throughout my life, I've been a very shy person. Um, you know, I don't, I, even today, I, I make my living uh, as a communication coach and, and, and instructor, but I, I still am a person that's very introverted. Often, I, um, still there, there's still that shy person inside of me. So I had to learn at the negotiation table how to advocate for myself, how to tell people what I wanted, why I wanted it, and to be very clear about what I wanted and why, and why it was just and fair. So that is something that, you know, once, so I did think about leaving. I, then I'm like, no, I need to continue on in this direction. And um, then I started learning some really important skills like negotiation, like 
advocating for yourself, like knowing the rules and the laws about the particular project that I was doing. Especially if you're going to write books, you need to be very, you need to learn how to advocate for yourself. You know, whether you're dealing with a publisher, whether you're dealing with, um, you know, an event organizer or a vendor, you got to learn how to advocate for yourself. And you have to be clear. You have to be, you know, clear about your expectations, what you want and why. And you always want to make sure that you, you, you're very discerning that what you're asking is fair and just. So, yeah, I'm very glad that um, I was able to kind of push past the frustration um, and push past the, uh, you know, the, the anger, the sadness, the loneliness. And I did have a, a, a lot of great people um, around me, like, you know, my father. I remember I, I had to give up a lot, you know, so this is another lesson that I learned. Um, there was a certain money, amount of money that was agreed to, you know, we agreed upon to, to pay me for writing the biography. And then there's the copyright issue. Then there was another issue about the video interviews that we did with historic leaders. One of my ideas was to um, have video interviews with people like Jesse Jackson, Minister Farrakhan, so that we could have a living record of this for people in, you know, future generations to see. And um, then there was a question about who owned that. And so Reverend Evans paid the videographer to, to do those. So he actually owned um, those videos. But then there was some question about whether or not I had any rights or claims to, you know, any part of the videos or if they published the videos, if I would get some kind of, you know, they were, they were concerned about whether I would be, you know, you know, if they had to pay me something to use those. And I didn't care about that. And so, but I, what I cared about was I wanted those access to the videos that I used to have access to, but once we started going through the drama, um, they blocked my access. And so thankfully I had a written transcript of all the, the video interviews. So I was able to finish the book, but I was like, I want to be able to, you know, show my family, you know, the interviews. And I want that to be part of my portfolio that I'm sitting across with Minister Farrakhan of Reverend Jackson. Um, and so we, we kept having these battles. It was, it would go on for years, you know, that's why one of the reasons it took eight years to write the book, but, um, People like my father and mentors who surrounded me helped me, once I decided to keep pushing, helped me push in a strategic, loving, and just way. And I will never forget one of the things that my dad said to me that changed everything. Because I was so frustrated at one point. I was like, all right, there's the money situation. You know, I'd like to get paid that large sum of money. Then there was... Um, the copyright issue, I wanted us to be done with that, and the video issue. And so I remember my dad said, what do you want? What is your goal here? Is your goal to get paid this amount of money? Is your goal to have access to these videos? Or is your goal to get this book published? And I said, the goal is to get the book published. He said, okay then that's the priority. These other things are important, but they're, they're not the priority. And so that taught me something. I came to the negotiation table and I said, keep the money, keep the access to the videos. I just want to own the, I, I own the copyright, but I just want to publish this book. And then all the drama stopped. They, they could no longer hold the money over me. They could no longer hold, you know, I just want to publish this book. I don't want anything from you. I just want to start, finish what I started. And 
from there, 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 there were some salty, salty faces at that table, but they, they could no longer obstruct me. The reason they could no longer obstruct my progress is because I identified the things that were important, but the things that were holding up the process, and I had to sacrifice those things. Totally worth it. I have no regrets about that. I could have, to this day, um, you know, maybe I'd have that sum of money, or maybe I'd have access to those videos. I wouldn't have this book published, you know. So for those of you watching, it, it, it's very important, you know. Um, and again, one of the things that happened to me is because I had gotten beaten up so bad in these meetings for years, you know, I got into this um, mentality of like victim. And sure, I was, I was a victim to a lot of bad behavior. And because of that, I was like, I'm entitled to stuff. You know, I'm tired of being pushed around. I'm tired of being misrepresented. And so I'm owed these things. So here's the money thing and give me access to the. So there's a sense in which and I wasn't wrong, um, but the, that kind of mentality, wanting to have everything because I was wronged, that mentality was keeping me back. And that thing that my dad said, what do you want to happen? What do you want? What's your goal here? The goal was to get the book published, and then I had to be at peace, letting go of things that I was owed, but things that ultimately didn't serve the purpose of the goal, but didn't help me accomplish the goal that I wanted to accomplish. So that was a huge lesson for me in the midst of, you know, wanting to quit, then pressing on, is having this, being, being able to discern the things that are the most important and what what is your goal you have to always ask yourself what is your goal and once you figure that out all these other things you got to be you got to be cool with letting them go and being at peace with that you were challenged to cut through all the noise and make the main thing the main thing right you know everything that is coming to you it's it's still coming let God handle the haters and just trust, right? Just trust in God's perfect plan, even when it's difficult. Such an inspiring um, journey that you have shared with us today. And I just know that the audience is going to want to learn more um, about you and about this powerful book. So first, why don't you tell our listening audience how they can get a copy of the book? Um, two places you can find the book. Uh, one is at Amazon. So you can find The Last Blues Preacher at Amazon. And you can also go to my publisher's website, which is Fortress Press. So fortresspress.com is the other place where you can find The Last Blues Preacher. Family, now you know how to get your hands on a copy of the book. Um, but Zach, I know that, you know, you've got a lot of exciting stuff in the works. So I also want you to share with the audience, what is the best way for them to stay in contact with you and be informed of your upcoming projects? So you can connect with me on Instagram. My Instagram is Zach, Z-A-C-H dot W dot Mills, M-I-L-L-S. So Instagram is where I'll be doing a lot of stuff. You can also go to my website, which is zmills.com. So there'll be uh, some exciting new updates there. I'm going to start a uh, video podcast, 
called What's Your Story? So I'll be talking to regular people like you um, and me and, and artists and, and different kinds of people who are doing creative and inspirational things during this global pandemic. So I'll be just telling stories and helping to get the message out about the wonderful work that people are doing. So you can connect with me on um, my Instagram, Zach W. Mills, uh, Zach.W.Mills, or, um, Insta- or uh, my website, which is ZMills.com. Okay, Publishing Secrets family. So make sure that you go on out and grab a copy of Zach's book and follow him on social media so that you can stay up to speed about what's your story and other projects. Zach, thank you so much again for taking time out of your day to, to be here with us and to share about your book and your journey. Before you go, I'd like for you to take a moment to speak into the lives of those that are where you were, except they're there right now. They're feeling unqualified, inadequate. Um, They feel like this writing thing is just too much for them. It's too big for them. And as a result, they haven't been able to really get started with their, with their work. What is your number one piece of advice for a person that's in that place right now? So I would say to somebody who is feeling insecure, who is feeling self-doubt, feeling inexperienced, feeling like an underdog, feeling beaten up, for those who are feeling lonely and angry, and misrepresented and not heard, um, the first piece of advice that I'd say is keep going. Keep going. Um, You're not alone. It's very important to remember. That's why I really appreciate this opportunity to be able to to share a a bit of my story is because I wish there had been someone there telling me that I'm not alone, that all these things I'm feeling are natural. And anytime that you, you, you set out to do something significant, you're going to have feelings of insecurity. You're gonna have feelings of self-doubt. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Oftentimes it means you should. So get excited. When you're doing something significant and you feel anxiety and self-doubt, that's good. That means you're at the beginning of an incredible journey that's going to change you, okay? Now I'd say this to the person who's feeling insecure about a project that you're feeling called to do, that you're given an opportunity to do. If you're scared, if you're insecure, if you're feeling self-doubt, get over it. Get over it. And I mean that in a very loving way. I understand what it means to feel all of those things. But if I had just stayed in that state of anxiety and fear and loneliness, this book would have never gotten written. And I never would have gone on this journey. And yes, moments of it were rocky, but even if there were more bad moments than good moments, which wasn't true, it still was a beautiful experience. It changed me for the better. And none of that would have happened if I had let my fear and doubt and insecurity stop me. And all of the wonderful comments I hear from people who say, I couldn't put the book down. I was sad when the book ended. I wanted more. All of those things say to me, if I had let 
my fear and anxiety stop me from writing the book. Whatever positive experience all these other people have had, they wouldn't have had it. So get over your anxiety. Get over your, your self-doubt. Get over your insecurity. This book, this project, whatever you're working on, it's bigger than you. It's about all the people that it would touch if you're courageous enough to take the step forward. So get over it. Take a step. It's going to feel uncomfortable. It's going to feel like you don't know what you're doing. I had no clue what I was doing. I do now. I learned. I took a step, and then I took another step. So take a step. You'll get nowhere worried. You'll get nowhere thinking that you're not experienced enough. You'll get nowhere doing all of that. You get somewhere by taking a step. And guess what? You don't have to know exactly where the next step is or what direction the next step should go. You just got to know about this first step. Take it. And then you can figure out where you go from there. So get over it. Take a step. And then let the significance of your project be the motivation that keeps you taking more steps. And the significance of the project is one day there will be people who say, thank you for creating this. Well, I hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Publishing Secrets, where our mission is to encourage and inspire you to write, publish, and profit in a way that honors God. In order to stay up to date on our episodes, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so that you will be notified. And if this episode has been a blessing to you, do me a favor, rate and review. Until next time, God bless.